Amen. Today, we are taking a slight detour from the Psalms. If you've got your Bibles with you, uh, open to the Song of Solomon, also called the Song of Songs, that is to say, the very best song. We have been uh, considering our souls using Israel's songbook, the Psalter, in the midst of our Bibles. But in so doing, I did not want to neglect this other love song that is in the heart of our Bibles. And uh, if you'll allow me just an extended moment here before I read uh, the passage, it's necessary for us to talk just for a moment about the song of songs. How do we make sense of this book that we find in this particular place in scriptures? Israel first and now the church have had to wrestle with the idea of this somewhat highly charged, albeit metaphorical celebration of marital love and sexuality, which is found right in the heart of the Bible. For much of the history of the church, the idea was, you know what, this, even though this is using the language of marriage and the language of physical marital love, it's actually not talking about that at all. It's in fact talking about God's love for Israel, Christ's love for then the church, and vice versa, the church's or Israel's love for God, love for Christ. And so the book, the song, was seen to be an allegory. And in the midst of interpreting it, all sorts of connections were made between the metaphors and that attaches to others, other aspects of Scripture, some of which you could make sense of and others you kind of wondered how that connection was made and what would you do about it? How could you disagree with the connection that was made because you can't find anything to actually support it? In the last 200 years or so, interpreters have taken a more historical or literal approach to this text and have recognized it for what it appears to be, namely a celebration of sexuality, of marital love in all of its aspects, especially its physicality. So in the middle of our Bibles, we have this very positive statement about love. And now it's a positive statement, but as a positive statement, it then serves as a little bit of a corrective a corrective to those who might view sexuality is as something that is less than pure. So if you're pure in heart, you actually abstain from this kind of thing. Song of Solomon is a correction to that. Or it's a correction to those who would make an idol out of sexuality, who would elevate it to be the ultimate thing and would restrict or would, would eliminate any constrictions on it to marriage and say that this can be done anywhere by anyone in any circumstance. Song of Solomon puts it in the context of a husband and wife in marriage. It also, I think, can serve as a corrective to us in our day uh, when oftentimes sexuality is viewed as just another physical thing that we do. 
a drive that we happen to have that is actually no more complex, no more mysterious, no more intimate than eating or drinking or breathing or walking would be. The Song of Solomon celebrates the intimacy and the mystery of human sexuality between a husband and wife. Now, of these two strands of interpretation, allegory or more literal, I tend towards the second of those two. That is to say that this is a celebration of sexuality between a husband and wife. That said, and Tommy already made this clear when he introduced our reading today, whenever the Bible begins to speak about marriage, it often turns right into a description of and a metaphor for the relationship that we have as people before God or as Christ has with us as his church. God's relationship to his people is a covenantal love story. And as God breathes life into us, as he breathes life into us at creation, and as he breathes life into us again through the Spirit at redemption, then we realize that we have the ability and the desire to love God and to love others. We have been magnetically charged through the breath of God with the capacity and the calling to love. And there are countless examples of that in Scripture. Sorry, I put my bulletin away. But I've, our, our service has already been saturated with examples of this. So on the front of your bulletins, from Hosea, God saying, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy. Oh, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Our call to worship was from Revelation chapter 19, the wedding feast of the Lamb. The first hymn that we sang together, My Heart Does Overflow, is from Psalm 45. It is a marital psalm that we've talked about together before. Our confession of sin acknowledged our failure to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul. In Ephesians 5, as much as we can and should take marital instruction from it, it's all about the love of Christ for his church, for his bride, and then ours for him as well. In fact, uh, uh, today, uh, the second and third hymns that we use today were written by Bernard of Clairvaux, a Cistercian monk from the 1100s. And amongst his many writings and his uh, sermons, were some 80-plus sermons on the Song of Solomon. Not a one of them is about marital love. All of them are about the love of God, of Christ for his church, and of the church for Christ himself. So today, what we are doing is we are reading together a love poem. It is indeed a celebration of marital love, but... I focus my application of it today completely 
on our soul being enraptured with the love of God in Christ Jesus poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Hear this poetry then as the bride reflects on her groom from chapter 2 and then going into chapter 3. The Word of God. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He grazes among the lilies until the day breathes and the shadows flee. Turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. On my bed by night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city, in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him, would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. The enraptured soul. Lord God, as we come to this text today, and as we wrestle with the great calling to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We ask that you would both give us instruction through the word, clarity in our mind and hearts through the working of your spirit as we contemplate these things, seeking your glory and seeking your love. Jesus, we ask this in your name, confident that you hear us. Amen. If I have not love... I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So writes the apostle, and then he gives this encompassing call that follows just a little bit later. Pursue love. The bride and the groom in what we've just read in this song, are enraptured with one another. Listen to the way he talks about her in chapter 4, verse 9. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. That is a man smitten with love for this woman. And now I make the connection, perhaps abruptly, but clearly. By the incredible grace of God and not due to any inherent beauty in us, we, you, and I 
have captivated the heart of Jesus. His heart is captivated by you. He is enraptured with us. Without a glance from our eyes, without a particularly lovely jewel in our necklace, in fact, without any singular attribute of body or soul that might cause him to say, wow, that's really a special person with a special gleam in their eye and I just love their eyes or I love this about them. Without any of that that would be worthy of praise, Jesus has set his love on us. Jesus is enraptured with you. He who is faithful and true, and that's his name, he is called faithful and true. We read Revelation chapter 19, the wedding feast, the wedding supper being prepared right after the section that we read. The groom comes in riding on the white horse and he's called faithful and true. He who is called faithful and true is the faithful and true lover of your soul. Now, I hope you have a great marriage. I hope that husbands, you love your wives, and I hope that wives, you love your husbands. And I hope that you have great relationships with your siblings and with your parents and with your grandparents and grandchildren and everything else that can be connected. But faithful and true is the one who is faithful and true the lover of your soul. And no one loves you like he loves you. He has and he is beautifying us. He is making us his beautiful bride. How does your soul respond to that? How does the bride respond to it in the Song of Songs? With possession, passion, and pursuit. First, with possession. You have heard it said, love's not possession. Love shouldn't be possessive. Love has to be free. It must be the free expression of self. Love can't involve possessing something or someone. And yet, here's how it starts. The bride says, my beloved is mine, and I am his. Standing as a gate, at the entrance of covenantal love is mutual possessing. First person, singular, possessive pronoun, my beloved is mine. Now, how, how does that sit for modern ears? Well, I think it sounds oppressive it sounds restrictive, 
It sounds like you're inhibiting my ability to be myself, stifling. And yet, in such possession, in such being possessed, is found in the covenant of God the liberty of love. Freedom is found in the midst of this. He may be like a gazelle grazing among the lilies. He may be off somewhere in the cleft of a rock, wherever he is. But he, wherever he is, is hers. He belongs to her. I will be your God, and you will be my people. That's covenantal language from God to us. I will be yours, and you will be mine. We have, and we can certainly use the first-person plural possessive pronoun. It can be our and ours, but you have license in your relationship with God to use the first-person singular possessive. To say that he's my God, to say that he is mine. Jesus possesses us covenantally, but his possession of us differs from a possession that would be associated with slavery or mere servitude. And the reason that it differs and the way that it differs is that as soon as he possesses us, he offers himself. He gives himself as well as our possession. And so the father of our bridegroom says to us in another place in Scripture, all I have is yours. It's all yours. Everything that I have is yours. And thus the bride, when she finds him after the search, obviously she's searching for him in chapter 3, when she finds him, she isn't just being clingy when she says, I held him and would not let him go. She is possessing rightly that which is hers. She is clinging to him. And that leads us from the possessing, the possession, to the passion that is reflected in this song. Every line in this poem is passionate. Nothing in it is cold, formulaic. Nothing in it is contractual. It's not begrudging. It is not mechanical. When you include a line like this in a song in the middle of Scripture, eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love, you know you're being passionate. You know you are speaking deeply from the heart. These two lovers, they love one another. These two souls love one another. Her name for him, in addition, there's many names that she gives to him, but in addition to my beloved, my beloved, is the one that is repeated in each verse. In verse 1, 2, 3, and 4, 
Him whom my soul loves. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Now, these are young lovers. They occupy each other's thoughts, each other's hearts, each other's attention. If they had cell phones, they would be irritating. They would be continually texting one another, sending little messages about whatever is taking place in their lives. They would continually be sending emojis to one another, expressing their love for each other, their desire for each other. And let's be clear about the passion that is here. This is an affection. It has implications. It takes action. But in and of itself, love is an affection. And I know that we typically use the words feeling and emotion more to describe this, but they can be a little bit, uh, a little bit light, a little bit lacking in weight. And I think affection gives us a little bit more weight in expressing this. Love is an affection of the heart. It is not simply the expression. It is not simply an action. It is an affection of the heart. And it is the chief of the affections of the heart. Now, young love, puppy love, engaged couple love. That's a good thing. It's fun. It's sweet. It's nice. It's wonderful. It's energetic. It's good. Seasoned love marinated love, love that has been slow cooked over the fire of life's joys and its sorrows, that's better. That's better. Both are good. That one's better. Jesus wants the love, the affection of your heart. How is the passion of your soul for Jesus? Does your relationship with Jesus ever involve the kind of language that we see in this love song right here? Now, to be sure, this isn't the only metaphor for understanding our relationship with God. There are other times when more formal is good, when other metaphors can be employed. We are children as well. There are plenty of other things that can be said. But this is one of them. How is the passion of your soul for Jesus? Does it ever reflect the kind of affection that is demonstrated here and the kind of language that is used to describe it? If the affection of your soul, I'm going to say something here, and I'm going to qualify it right after I say it. If the affection of your soul for Jesus is measured in language like the Westminster Confession of Faith, you need to spend more time reading the Song of Solomon. Now, you know I love the Westminster Confession. We're teaching it right now. I just taught it 20 minutes ago. I love it. But if that's my soul language, I need to read this more. Because Jesus wants my heart and my mind. 
How is the passion of your soul for Jesus? I'm not talking about your service. I'm not talking about good deeds that you might do. I'm not talking about your marriage, your work, how you raise your kids. I'm not talking about coming to church. I'm not even talking about do you read your Bibles on a regular basis or not. The question that I'm asking is the question that Jesus asked to Peter. Do you love me? Do you love him who loves you? A thousand things to us, it seems to us at least, every day are more urgent, they're more important, they're more practical than the question that is before us. And yet, there is nothing eternally or presently more significant than your soul being loved by and loving your Jesus. Everything else seems like it's more important than that. This seems like an incredibly impractical question, ethereal in its very essence, and yet nothing is more important than it. Possession passion and pursuit. And so Paul says, pursue love. Make it your aim. Make it your charge. Love doesn't just happen. Pursue it. Why? You should pursue love because it is a worthy goal. It is the worthiest of goals. You should pursue love. But why are we commanded to pursue love? The reason is because all sorts of stuff gets in between us and the love of our soul for Jesus Christ. Sin and selfishness gets in there and all sorts of things, even, even good things can get in between us and our love for Jesus. And that is why so many times the prophets warn Israel, quit going through the form of things with no heart behind them. Stop that. Don't do that. Don't give me these half-hearted sacrifices. Your form looks great, but your heart's far away. These things will crowd out the call that we have of our souls to love him. And both the loss and the pursuit are seen in the song as we've read it. There seems to be, as you read through the Song of Solomon, and our passage reflects this as well, a kind of strange loss that is here, a separation that exists between these two lovers. Where has he gone? She seeks her groom, right? That's what's going on in verses 1 through 3. He's still the one, him whom her soul loves, but he is gone and she misses him. And she goes out and goes about the city. Where is he? She wakes up in the middle of the night. Is it a dream? Is it a reality? We don't know, but he's not there. And she wants to know where he is. Let me draw two lessons that I think come out of this. The first is this. We are not yet in heaven. The marriage supper of the Lamb 
has not yet taken place. We started there with our call to worship, Revelation chapter 19, in anticipation of that day, but we are not there yet. We are not yet experiencing the immediate, physical, constant, uninterrupted presence of Jesus. We're not there yet. We're in the wilderness right now. And maybe that has something to do with verse 5. Don't awaken love before it's time. It's hard to wait for the consummation of love. If you were engaged, you remember that. And we, too, are engaged as the people of God preparing for a grand wedding. Love has been awakened within us, but not yet consummated. And we wait and we long for that day. In the meantime, under God's providence, there are times when we will experience, and perhaps it is because of our sin, perhaps it's because of our neglect of some of the means of grace that God has given to us, or perhaps it's because what, of the fact that God has something he wants to teach us. But what we will experience in the words of the Westminster Confession is God's withdrawing the light of his countenance. Sometimes we will wake up and we will experientially feel, where's God? As this bride wonders, where is my beloved? Where has he gone? He hasn't abandoned us utterly, but he has something to teach us and his very departure from us, at least our perception of his departure, our perception of the withdrawing of the light of his countenance is real. So what do you do when you wake up and your lover isn't there? Well, that's the second lesson that comes out of this. The lesson of our bride is the lesson to us you seek. You get up, you go around the city, you look in every place, you ask people, have you seen him? You do whatever you need to do to find the one whom your soul loves. Pursue love, pursue your lover. You see the parallel here between what Paul is calling us to do, pursue love, and what this bride is doing. Pursue your lover. Where has my lover gone? This week, Talk to your soul and say to your soul, soul, pursue love and pursue the lover of your soul. And don't be content with anything else. Each of us may need something different in this. Perhaps you need to repent of some sin. Perhaps there is some unreconciled relationship that is hindering your relationship with God. Maybe you need to re-examine your priorities, your schedule, your spiritual disciplines. I don't know what it is. But you look around every part of the city because nothing is more important than you finding your lover, the lover of your soul. Pursue him. Possession and passion and pursuit as I close this, I want to go back to where I began. Jesus loves you. This you know. For the Bible tells you so. Little ones, 
to him belong. We are possessed by him. Remember the order. We love and we pursue love because he first loved and pursued us. In other words, this is to say that God is calling us to pursue love, to pursue the groom, to pursue Jesus, but he has given you that which is required to pursue. It is the groom's bridal gift to us that makes this possible. His bridal gift, in the words of Derek Kidner. And that bridal gift to us, who would otherwise be merely unfaithful lovers, impossible to return the love offered to us, the bridal gift to us is a new heart and a new spirit. Reigniting recharging, resetting the magnetic fields for us so that the spirit within us enables us to cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ, to seek the one who loves us. And yet even when we do that, even if you find your lover experiencing the light of his countenance, experiencing the goodness of God, the taste of his presence, in your day-to-day life, here's the reality. We're always going to feel some nagging lack in our love for Jesus. Some sense like, is this real? Am I just making this up? And it doesn't seem to me like I love him enough. Here's how Bernard of Clairvaux responds to that. Yet even when she has fallen so wholly in love, She thinks she loves too little because she is loved so much. And she is right. What can repay so great a love and such a lover? You and I, at our best, are always going to feel in this life, Jesus, I don't love you enough. And when we are in heaven, and when we have been glorified, and when the beautification process of us has been complete, we will love our lover exactly as we ought. The soul will be recalibrated. All of the vestiges of sin that stand between us and our lover will be done away with, and we will love him. For now, Bride of Christ, with all of your soul, be loved and pursue your beloved. Let's pray.